Amen. And uh, we'll let our children be dismissed to Children's Church now. The book of Romans, chapter 9 today, verses 6 through 13, will be our text. <clears throat> I imagine when you go about uh, trying to make decisions, you, you want to make, uh, make them based upon uh, some facts. You want informed decisions, and perhaps you will, uh, if you're, whether you're buying a car or a toaster, you will maybe ask a friend, you know, if, if they've had that particular model or what, what their experience is with it, or you might read an article about it or look up something on it on the web or try to inform yourself so you can make a, a practical decision. And then you end up buying a, the same car that your friend recommended to you, but yours is a lemon. And... The problem is our information is not always accurate. And what one person's experience might be is different from another's. Um, but when God makes decisions, it's never based on faulty information because he's omniscient. He knows everything. All his choices, his determined purpose is based on perfect knowledge. And so... His choices are always exactly in line with his will. His decisions always fulfill his purposes. In this passage of Romans 9, we see that his purpose, especially regarding Israel, has not failed. It has come about exactly as he has determined it to be. And this is important not only for how we are to understand how Israel relates to the gospel, but how the gospel relates to us and God's promises, how do they relate to us? Uh, Romans 9, beginning at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is God's purpose summarized in a couple of short statements and really the rest of uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are designed to uh, answer how these two short statements uh, are true. That God's word has not failed first of all. This is based especially on what we saw last week in verses 1 through 5 so let's look at those quickly. Uh, Romans 9 starting at verse 1 I tell the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the service of God the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And so what Paul is saying here, based on those first five verses and especially the, all the grand privileges bestowed upon Israel, that God is still working his purposes for them. Even, even though they didn't take advantage of all those great privileges. God's word never fails. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. And we'll start at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so my word shall be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And so as Paul writes in Romans 9, it is not as though God's word has failed to do what it was supposed to do, that God's promises somehow fell short, but his promises are being fulfilled exactly as he determined they, they should be. And Paul is in the, what follows, going to show how that is true. He goes on to say in this verse 6, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That there's, a, there's a, this, a distinction of the people who are of Israel. And there are Israelites who are both physical and spiritual descendants. That is, they're not only related physically all the way back to Isaac and Abraham, but they are spiritually related back as well. But, on the other hand, there are Israelites who are physical descendants of Abraham, but not spiritual descendants. So you have these two classifications, both physically and spiritually descended, and physically but not spiritually descended. Those, those people are in two different categories. And being a descendant or being a spiritual descendant of Abraham is based on one criteria alone, and that is faith in God. So you see that both groups, you, something true you could say of both groups is they're physical descendants. But of only one group could you say they're also spiritual descendants. And on what basis, what's the criteria for being able to say they're spiritually descended is based on faith alone. Paul had already made that abundantly clear here in um, the book of Romans. He does so again and again in the book of Galatians. But let's look at uh, back at Romans chapter 4, for instance. Romans 4, verses 1 through 3 says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it was by faith that, that Abraham had a right relationship with God. If you look further in this chapter 4 to uh, verse 22... Now, summarizing the, the chapter, what he says about Abraham, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so... Our relationship to God is through faith. But what Paul is making a statement is it's always been that way. The way that people are related to God, beginning with Father Abraham, is through faith alone. Not by anything that Abraham did, but by faith. And it's always been that way, even for Israel. And so just because you were physically related didn't make you a spiritual descendant. Um... But God has always had a remnant. There have always been those among Israel who have been true believers. Even at times when it, it didn't seem that way at all. If you look at uh, Romans 11, starting at verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Has he, has he just cast away Israel forever, never to deal with them anymore? 
<clears throat> and that is a crucial question in these chapters. Has God cast away Israel? And the answer is, certainly not. No way. For I also am an Israelite, Paul says. I, I'm an Israelite myself. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. This is Elijah after his, his episode at Mount Carmel and he is fleeing for his life. Jezebel wants him dead. And he, he thinks he's, he's the only one left. No one else in the whole world believes in God. And he's crying out to God about this. I alone am left. And they're trying to kill me. Verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Even back in the time of Elijah, God says, there's another 7,000 men out there who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant. And just as that was true back then, so it is true even now at this present time, verse 5 says, that even though most of Israel rejected Christ as Messiah, God still had a remnant. He had still had people that he was calling to himself by election through grace that they would be part of his, his family, those who would believe in Christ. There's always been a remnant. There's always been a portion of Israel who were true believers. So God's purpose is summarized in verse 6. And then we see God's purpose is not based on the flesh in verse 7 and 8 of Romans 9. Verse 7 and 8, but I'll, I'll start again at verse 6 just to get it in context. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So God's purpose is not based on the flesh. Both Isaac and Ishmael were physical descendants. They both came from Abraham through different uh, women through different mothers but they were both physically descended back to Abraham Ishmael came from Hagar Isaac came from Sarah and so if the point is if all that was needed was that you had to prove lineage back to Abraham in order to be in a right relationship with God and pleasing to him then Ishmael should be counted in as well then that's Paul's point here. And no self-respecting Jew would have included Ishmael and his descendants among the chosen people. So this would have really meant a lot to them. Even in Jesus' day, the Pharisees said, We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, Abraham never did the kinds of things that you are doing. In fact, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. But you are of your father, the devil. They were physically descended from Abraham, true. But spiritually, Jesus said, you are following the devil, not God. So both Isaac and Ishmael were physical descendants, but that's not enough. Only Isaac was chosen by God. To be a child of Abraham in a physical sense is not necessarily to be his Descended in a spiritual sense, as we have seen. Salvation is not a Jewish birthright. Just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you automatically are saved. Isaac was the one chosen by God, not Ishmael. So, only in Isaac is the seed called. Um, 
verse 7 nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham but in Isaac your seed shall be called it was through Isaac alone that the chosen people would come not Ishmael or any of the other children that Abraham later had through Keturah only through Isaac he was Isaac was not only just the one who was called but through him the seed was called there's a the wording here uh, is purposely chosen I think in light of uh, Romans 8 uh, 28 and 30 if you go back a chapter Romans 8 28 for we know that all things work together for those who are for, for good to those who, are, who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose those who are the called according to his purpose. And verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so Paul uses his wording here in verse 7. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. They are the, the called ones come from the seed of Isaac. Both Ish, Isaac and Ishmael were descendants. Only Isaac was chosen, and only in Isaac is the seed called. So God's purpose is not based merely on the flesh of being physically descended, but God's purpose is based on his promise. Verse 8, that is, that those, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So the issue is, children of God who, who are really children of God if you think about how that applied to to Israel it was only those who are of faith and the same kind of issue applies today doesn't it who, who are children of God is everybody in the world who's born a child of God well there are certainly those who, who think that that's so that everyone just by being created is a child of God but that's not true being a child of God comes only through regeneration, through rebirth, through being saved, being born again. And uh, look at John chapter 1. I think John 1, this passage here, is um, directly related to the passage we're looking at because it's talking not only about our relationship with Christ, how that comes about, but but Israel's relationship to Christ. In John 1, verses 10 through 13. Speaking of Christ, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. He came to His own, meaning His own people. If He came to His own people, that, that's the Jews, that's Israel, right? He came to Israel, His own and his own did not receive him. Now, of course, we know later on that there were a remnant who did, but for the most part, the vast majority did not receive him. But some did, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. So who are children of God? Those to whom God has given the right to become children of God. Those who have faith in Him. Who believe in His name. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Who have, in other words, not just physical birth, but spiritual birth. And just as that was true of Israel his own people, so it is true today. The only way that a person can have a right relationship with God is through faith in Christ. And that's the point that Paul is making. So, uh, the issue is children of God. Now go back to Romans 9. The issue is children of God, but the distinction is children of promise. Who are those who will become children of God then? They are the children of promises, verse 8 says. 
That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Isaac did not come about simply by Abraham and Sarah being married and, and coming together as husband and wife. They tried year after year after year until they were 100 years old and way past the time of childbearing so that it would be obvious that only God could bring this about and that Isaac would be born as the promised child. So there's no doubt God did this. He was the child of promise. Ishmael was not the child of promise. Isaac was the promised child of Abraham and Sarah particularly. So the issue is the children of God, the distinction is children of promise. Number four, God's purpose is based on his working. Verse nine. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It had to come through Sarah. So this is the word of promise. Now, we should connect back to verse 6 here, the beginning of that. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Now jump down to verse 9. For this is the word of promise. Because here's how God was fulfilling what he was was doing. This is the word of promise. And what God has promised, he will fulfill. His purposes never fail. And God both initiates and fulfills his promises. Um, note here in verse 9, for instance, for this is the word of promise. At this time, uh, uh, meaning next year, a year from now, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Note God's initiative in these verses. I will come. I'm going to bring this about. Verse 13, for instance. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. God is personally involved. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God directly involved. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And again and again in this section, God is showing that he both initiates and fulfills his purpose. So his purpose is, is being fulfilled because of his working. Number five, God's purpose is not based on man's working. Verses 10 through 12. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not, being, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So we have the distinction in Abraham's children between Isaac and Ishmael. Both physical descendants, but only one, a son of promise and a spiritual descendant. But then Isaac had children as well. He had Jacob and Esau. And then um, uh, Jacob and Esau had their children. Uh, Jacob's children becoming the nation of Israel. But going back to Rebekah, the wife of Isaac. When Rebekah ha also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac. Well, what happened to those, about those twins? Well, there, there's an important parenthetical statement that uh, is being made in verse 11. For those children, those twins... Not yet being born. So before they were even born, God ha is working his purpose and making his choice. Before they had done any good or any evil, so that it's not based on, well, Isaac's, I mean, Jacob's really better than Esau. The, the truth is they were both scoundrels. 
Esau had his own faults, but Jacob was not pure. He was a usurper. He was a schemer. He was a deceiver. But So it was not based on any good or evil that they had done. Verse 11 says, um, nor having done any good or, or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So not based on anything that they would do down the road. It's not like God said, well, they're evil now, but they're going to become better. It's not of works of anything that they would do, but simply based on God's call. That God would call Jacob to be the chosen lineage and not Esau. And he goes on to say in verse 12, It was said to her, to Rebekah when she was pregnant, The older shall serve the younger. Which is the opposite of what normally happens. Usually the firstborn gets uh, the majority of the privileges, if not all of them. And so this is really unusual for the second born to become uh, the preeminent one. But God did this on purpose to show that it was, had nothing to do with them, not even to do with their birth order. Nothing could be pointed at regarding them that would make them worthy of why they were chosen And finally, God's purpose is based on his election. We see this again in verses 10 through 13, especially in verse 11. For the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that, the purpose statement here, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. God has a purpose, and what is his purpose based on? According to his election. He held an election, and he was the only one who voted. One way to think about it. <laughs> that his purpose, according to election, might stand. God's election is a reflection of his will. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's begin at verse 3. You'll go 3 through 11. Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And you see, his election of us, his choosing us, also was before we were born, before we had done any good or evil, regardless of our birth order and anything to do with us. It was before the foundation of the world just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So his purpose is based on the pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure again. Which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
And that's what Paul is saying here in, in a shortened form in Romans 9, 11, that, that it's all based upon God's will, the purpose of his own will, which he purposed in himself without any outside influence. He didn't have to go to a council of someone and say, well, what do you guys think? He didn't ask the angels for their advice. He sure didn't ask us for our advice. But his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. It's higher than the heavens are of the earth. And, and yeah, these are hard things to understand. But the reason is because his thoughts are so much higher than ours. We, we can't think at that level. We accept by faith what God says. That, and what he does is always perfect. And his election is a reflection of his will. Uh, so God's election here is, is established not simply by virtue of God's prediction of Jacob's prominence over Esau, but by the fact that the prediction was made apart from any even potential circumstance of Jacob or Esau. God not only made a prediction, he made a promise. And his promise reflects his divine purpose. So we see in verse 11 again, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And again, the, the word purpose, just like the word called, brings us back to Romans 8, 28 and 30. Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose so that his election according to his purpose might stand verse 30 moreover whom he predestined these he also called and so forth that, that his purpose might stand so that the purpose of God according to election might stand God is fulfilling his eternal purpose he's carrying out his will by his choice, by his election of Isaac over Ishmael, by his election of Jacob over Esau. Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. God's choice in both cases was based purely upon his own will. God uh, by these choices, God has seen uh, to it that the plan he has is being brought about, that, that a people are being brought into existence who would be his, his chosen people, his uh, peculiar treasure, and that that purpose would remain, that it would stand fast, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. If it were based on the dubious character of human beings, it would, his purpose would have fallen long ago. But as Paul says, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It has taken the exact effect that God designed because it's based not on the goodness of men to uphold the covenant, but on God who is the covenant maker and keeper. Um, so God's will stands his promises are sure his election is certain because it is not of works but of him who calls so God's election is a reflection of his will and finally God's election is a reflection of his love verse 13 as it is written, Jacob, I have loved. And why don't we just end the verse there and <clears throat> make it a lot easier to explain. Jacob, I have loved. Amen. But Esau, I have hated. Now it starts to get sticky, doesn't it? As it is written, 
is referring back to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. And by saying here, as it is written, makes it clear that the contrasting destinies between Jacob and Esau were not simply seen in advance by, seen in advance by God, but actually caused by him. Jacob's preeminence over Esau was a result of God's love for him. Esau's servitude was the result of God's hate for him. And it's at this point, of course, that we all tend to stumble. We can, in some sense, understand God's love for Jacob, even though as we read the life of Jacob, he wasn't by any means a perfect person. But we can understand how God would love someone, how God might set his love, his choice upon Jacob. But what are we to make of God's hate for Esau? Does God who is love actually hate anyone or anything? Well, Psalm 47 verse 5 says, God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Psalm 5 5 says, God hates all workers of iniquity. So, to understand this, I, I think what we need to do is to take into consideration what love and hate mean to God as compared to what they mean to us. The, the stumbling block is because we tend to look at this verse and this statement in light of what we think of love and hate. Um, for example, if you take God's love, how does the world, the populace in general, Think of the term love. What, what does love mean? Well, often it's a, it's a warm, emotional, fuzzy feeling kind of a thing. Uh, love can be a, just a physical attraction. Love can be an infatuation. Uh, love can be based upon what this other person does for me. They make me feel good about myself, and so I like that. I, in fact, love that, and therefore I love them because they are saying things to me that build me up and make me feel good about me. So love is, love from the world side is, is different from God's love. God's agape love is his settled disposition to bestow blessing on others no matter what the cost is. It is God's settled disposition. He has determined, chosen, decided to bestow blessing on others, no matter what the cost. We know the cost was his son on the cross. If we have that kind of love for one another, then, then we would have that kind of commitment Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. To have a, a settled disposition, a commitment, a determination, husband, to love your wife, to be a blessing to her, no matter what the cost, which means primarily you give up yourself. That's what God's love is. Well, you see, the same way that we kind of misconstrue the the definition of God's love, we, we get that wrong in our everyday life. We don't really love each other to that degree, even though if we understand we should, we try to. I think the same thing is true regarding hate. As God talks about hate, we, we don't understand what that's all about either. For one thing, when we talk about being sinned against, we are mere human beings who, who are sinful ourselves. So it's one sinner sinning against another sinner and vice versa. And we might hate someone for doing that, but we're sinful too. God is the only holy one. And to sin against holy God is very different than sinning against mere man. Perhaps why David says in Psalm 51, 
against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight when he talks about his sin against Bathsheba so also we think about God's hate it's not just an emotional outburst God's hate is not just a a feeling based on some temporary circumstances. God's hate, like his love, is his settled disposition in regard to a thing or person. His love is his settled disposition to bring blessing upon a person no matter what the cost. His hate is also his settled disposition regarding a person or a thing. Now, to say that God loves someone like Jacob is to say that God chose Jacob and he chose to set his love upon him. God elected or chose Jacob. That's what it means by God loved him. For God loved um, Jacob. He chose him. He chose to set his love upon him. So to to say that God hates someone like Esau is to say that God did not choose or elect him. That's the opposite of love. To love is to choose to set his love upon him, to elect him. To hate is to not choose them. So it comes down to choice. In addition... There are biblical examples of love and hate being used comparatively. The, um, the most obvious example, I think, is Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, If anyone does not hate father or mother or sister or brother or his husband or wife or his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, how do we balance that with husbands love your wives? Or even you're supposed to love your enemies. And you're supposed to love your father and mother and honor them. But he says if anyone does not hate them. Well surely he means this in a comparative sense. That is if you compare um, your commitment to God and to even your closest family members. The difference should be that it would seem like love and hate. But also, remember, it comes down to a matter of choice. If you had to choose between God and your father, which one? Where's your choice? It's always putting God above anyone else or anything else. It's making that choice. So we see both of these points, love and hate related to choice, and love and hate related to priority back in Genesis 29. So go to Genesis 29 and uh, we'll end there. Genesis 29, starting at verse great passage for showing that both love and hate are related to choice and love and hate are related to priority and uh, I think purposefully this is this example comes from the very life of Jacob who was loved verse 30 then Jacob also went into Rachel and he loved, he also loved Rachel more than Leah and served with Laban still another seven years. Um, Jacob worked for Rachel. He got Leah in the bargain. Uh, not that he wanted to, but he got her and had to work another year, seven years to get Rachel. Well, he finally, he gets Rachel and he loves her more than Leah. Verse 31, when 
the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, actually it should be translated hated. Unloved is too soft a term here. The word actually means hated. But you see that in verse 30, it's a comparative. He loved Rachel more than Leah. It's not that he didn't love Leah, but he loved Rachel more. But that is termed as hate in verse 31. Well, Jacob, he loved Rachel and he chose her above Leah. She had the priority over Leah. And that was obvious to Leah. So and what God does is he opens Leah's womb so that she can bear children. Verse 32, so Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Love is, love is a choice. Love is a reflection of Jacob's choice. In the same way that God loved Jacob, he chose him. He hated Esau, he did not choose him. And that's that God's election, that God's purpose according to election might stand. It's not based upon them, but upon God's choice. Now, this may seem hard to take. In fact, you may be wondering, well, how can God then hold people accountable if he chooses some and does not choose others? If he loves some, sets his love on them, and he hates others, does not choose them, then how can those not chosen ones be held accountable? Well, that's next week, because... Romans 9.14 says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And, and so Paul understands that that's going to be the, the very kind of question that comes up in people's minds. Well, how can God hold people accountable then? We'll see the answer to that next week. But for now, just in closing, thinking of... Um, worship team, why don't you come on up and get ready for our closing song. Is two points in, in application here. The first of those is that God's purpose never fails. And we see that regarding what he is doing purposely in the life of Israel and who he's choosing and not and so forth. His purpose never fails and that includes you. His purpose does not fail for you. You need to trust him for what he is doing. And secondly... The most important question to ask at this point is not who are the elect, but what is my relationship with God right now? Do I believe in Christ? We can't, we're not supposed to go around figuring out who, whom God has chosen. It's not like people go around with an E on their forehead for elect or something. We, we share the gospel with everyone and we, we ourselves can only answer for ourselves to God, right? What is your relationship with him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins? Will you trust him for that? God's amazing love is our song in closing. Let's have a word of prayer before we sing, though. Lord, you do work in mysterious ways because your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and your ways above our ways. We acknowledge that we, we can't fully understand, but we know that your purpose is being fulfilled exactly as you want it to, and so our trust is in you. We are amazed at your love, your, your graciousness toward us. For those of us who belong to you, we recognize that we could have gone the way of Esau as well as the way of Jacob, that it was nothing in us um, that caused you to love us. But in your own purposes, in your own will, you have set your love upon us and at such a high cost. 
We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are beautiful beyond description to marvelous Stay.